The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 362 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is schizophrenia false memories, false family memoirs, and family caregiving. Now, schizophrenia is a severe mental illness which affects memory, among many other important functions connected with the brain. Now, when we talk about memory and memory problems, we we remember that memory can be at times unreliable for every one of us. Uh, which can lead us to forget important things, who hasn't done that, to recall things that didn't really happen to us. But the experts use the term false memories as the name that's used when people are utterly convinced that what they're remembering is true when it's actually false or seriously distorted. Now, memory for individuals living with schizophrenia Some of these individuals, not all of them, lose contact with reality, see things that aren't there, hear things that other people don't hear, and some of them may experience false memories associated with their losing contact with reality, seeing things that aren't there, or hearing things that other people don't hear. So for individuals living with schizophrenia, schizophrenia, the the, the memories and memoirs of their family members may be the only way in which the individual's false memories can be recognized for what they really are, false, and responded to safely and sympathetically, which is why our topic, schizophrenia, false memories, family memoirs, and family caregiving is so important for family caregivers and their family members. Now, to discuss it, our, our guest is Catherine Flannery Deering. Catherine is the second of ten children. Her younger brother Paul was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 16. Catherine is the author of, and this is the title of a book, her book, Shot in the Head, A Sister's Memoir, A Brother's Struggle. She writes about her experiences caring for her brother and speaks about the role of family in caring for a person with mental illness. Now, she's a writer. Her poetry and essays have appeared in Inkwell magazine, as well as the Bedford Record Review, Northwoods Press, Sensations magazine, Pandaloon Press, Poetry Motel, 
Pink Elephant magazine and Stories from the Couch, which is an anthology of essays about coping with mental illness. She holds an MFA from Manhattanville College, a BA from Lemoyne College, and an MBA from the University of Minnesota at Duluth. She's a former CFO at a community bank in New York. So welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Gordon. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Great. Now, first question for you. Please tell us more about your life, your career, and your experience as the elder sister of your brother, Paul, as he lived his life with schizophrenia. Catherine? Well, uh, as, as you mentioned, I was the second of uh, the ten Flannery children. Paul was eight, uh, so we grew up quite separately. I was 12 when he was born. I remember him as a baby. Um, I remember seeing him be baptized and being a toddler in preschool and that sort of thing when I was in high school. So when Paul had his first psychotic episode when he was 16, uh, only two or three of the younger children were at home with him, and I didn't see it. I was already married and had a small child. and was living upstate in another city, in Buffalo, as a matter of fact. Um, I was upset, you know, to hear that my brother was sick, but my life went on. Uh, I went on, I, I was divorced, I moved around, I, I had a career, but when I moved back to the East Coast after my divorce, um, I often got pulled into going to visit Paul at the psychiatric hospital with my mother. He was very ill. Uh, I mean, he was what is known as treatment-resistant um, schizophrenia, and uh, often had inappropriate sexual comments to make and that sort of thing. So the visits were not the greatest, but my mother stood by him. And uh, after she passed away, I ended up taking two or three turns with two or three of my other siblings and began to play a bigger and bigger role in his care. Right. Now, Catherine, please tell us about your book, Shot in the Head. First of all, why that title? Catherine? Well, it, it's interesting that the title is is um, actually based on a false memory. Uh, I got to a nursing home where he was being cared for, and uh, it was actually a uh, nursing home meant for older people, and uh, a woman was leaving his room as I arrived, and she had been visiting her father who, has, who had um, Alzheimer's. And she said to me, oh, I just met your brother. Uh, I'm so sorry, you know, what happened to him? And I said, well, what, what do you mean? I wondered what he had told her. And she said, well, he told me about how he had been shot in the head. And I said, well, uh, no, actually, he was never shot in the head. <laughs> and uh, what it was is he would often tell people that he had been shot in the head. I, I don't know whether it was because he really thought he'd been shot in the head or because he began to notice that if he told people that they were very sympathetic to him. You know, I think society at large is more sympathetic to someone like in the U S Gabby Giffords, who was shot in the head uh, by some, some weird person and has trouble afterwards as opposed to uh, someone who has schizophrenia. Right. Now, tell us more, a little bit more about the book. Um, in particular, why did you write it? And who, who do you think you would want to read it? And why would you want them to read it? Catherine? Well, I wrote the book. I, I actually, I was working on this MFA, 
uh, in the evenings. It was a change from my work as a chief financial officer. And I was really enjoying uh, writing and was thinking of writing another book. But I kept ending up writing little things about Paul as we cared for him. And uh, the stress of caring for him, particularly once he developed lung cancer, uh, I just kept getting pulled into writing about him. And and one day I wrote a 10-page essay titled Shot in the Head, and I just I just had to write that essay, and then that became the you know the basis of the, the rest of the book. But um, as far as who would who I would like to read it, I think there's like two or three different groups of people. I think anyone who who has ever had to care for someone with Alzheimer's or Down syndrome or or any any time anyone has had to care for some someone who has cancer. They can relate to that that mixture of feelings the caregiver has and setting aside the time to do it, knowing you really want to do the best thing by your family member, but uh, some misgivings sometimes about dedicating so much of your life to that care. It's a very complex um, series of emotions you go through, and um, I find that anyone who reads it, um, men and women, uh, younger people, older people, all seem to relate to it in pretty much the same way. They, they really, it's, it's an emotional thing that they're relating to based on their own experiences. Talking about their own experiences, I've heard people on this show, when they talk about the things you are talking about, um, describe a sense of guilt that they sometimes have. Is that something that you're, you've written about, that people experience in, in, your, in your knowledge of this field, Catherine? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a little bit of survivor guilt. Um, why out of 10 children was he the one who, who got this? And I'm going about my life and having a pretty nice life, and this poor guy is not having such a good, good time of it. But there's also the feeling like it doesn't matter how much you do, it isn't enough. You, you haven't been able to make a difference. In, in the in how the disease progresses, so um, I'd say that uh, I often felt that way that I should have done more. Um, yet when you look at it realistically and objectively, you say, "Well, you did what you could, and that's all you can do." And I, I think an awful lot of people feel that way. Now, if I can just put something to you that comes from the disease itself. Um, it's not medically curable in the way that cancer can be snipped out by a surgeon. Um, there is something called recovery where people can live uh, a life that where, in which they can fulfill their capabilities, but at the same time, the condition remains. Now, was that something that you recognized, this, the possibility of recovery, but at the same time that it wasn't the same thing as a cure? Catherine? Uh- Yes, yes, and and there's definitely um, very different recovery rates and different responses to medication. Uh, Back in the 50s and 60s, when they were first bringing out all these modern psychotropic drugs, uh, uh, most people thought, in the field thought, that everyone would be able to fully recover. You could just take this and it would make, uh, it'd be like some of the drugs people take now for a migraine. The migraine goes away and you can go on about your life. 
But um, it hasn't worked out that way. Only about 25% of people who, develop, who are diagnosed with schizophrenia actually truly recover in the way that we think of recovery. They can go back to whatever their career choice was. They can be married, raise families, whatever. But um, another 25% maybe can um, have the kind of recovery you're talking about. If they take their medication, if they see counselors, if they do everything they have to do, they can achieve a semblance of a normal life, Um, you know, pretty close. But they really do need a lot of support. And then there's the other 50%. Um, The statistics change, you know, exactly, but... But that group of people, maybe 15 to 25% of them by the end of 20 or 30 years have possibly committed suicide or at least have, have passed away a little prematurely. And the other 25% have um, mixed results. They're in and out of hospitals. They sometimes are um, surviving in a, in a group home, but they're not, they're not really... Um, recovered. So you see that whole range of, of results in people, and, and um, uh, it's been like that for, for several decades now, and there haven't been any really, really significant uh, changes in those kinds of recovery rates, um, although there is some promise with early intervention that I've been reading about, but no, no proof on that yet. Just a very quick Quick point before we go to the break. You address these points in your book, don't you? I address most of them. I don't address that specific range of results, although I do have information about it on the book's website and on the book's Facebook page. I included a lot of information there. But in the book, I do uh, talk about um, what happened in the 50s and 60s when all the mental hospitals were emptied. I call it the great emptying. And... um, what they did is they just sort of assumed that everyone was going to be able to make it if they just take their medication and yep. pushed them all out of the hospitals and into insufficient community support. And out onto the street. Oh, now, yeah, most of them, homeless, uh, whatever. Yes. Now, we've come to the point where we have to take the break. Okay. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Catherine Deering. Your Listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. 
The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Catherine Deering. Our topic is schizophrenia, false memories, family memoirs, and family caregiving. Now, Catherine, please let's talk about the effects of the problems that schizophrenia created for Paul in his interactions with reality and his memories of the past realities of his life. Um, You've already mentioned that, shot in the head as an example, but I'd like you to talk more about it. So my first question is, please describe the problems that Paul experienced in his interactions with reality. Catherine? Well, uh, I, I guess the best way to, to, to approach that is to uh, talk about his first psychotic break. Uh, he, was, he was 16. He was a junior in high school. Uh, earlier, in, like in middle school and into freshman year of high school, he had been on the football team and was very active and, and busy. And um, He had gotten a little bit temperamental. He had cut school a few times, and he was experimenting with some pot, but... He didn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary teenager. But one evening, uh, he uh, was late coming down to dinner, and the family had gone on without him. My parents and two of the younger children, uh, just the three children left at home at that point. And uh, he came running down the stairs screaming, and he had shaved his head. He was bleeding profusely, as you can imagine, because he nicked himself several times. And he was screaming that he had been scalped. And uh, he went, he screamed, you know, can't you see? They're, they're killing all the Indians. And he, he ran out into the kitchen and grabbed the keys to the Volkswagen that they had at the time and ran off and jumped in the car and took off. And it happened almost that fast. It, it took about two minutes altogether by the time my parents and younger siblings had figured out what was going on, they went running out to try to stop him, but it was too late. And uh, he didn't have a driver's license or anything yet. And 
He was stopped by police after a while, and he made absolutely no sense. And they took him to a psychiatric facility. And and that was really um, that was really it. From that point on, Paul never really connected with the reality. He, he could he could remember things that happened when he was little. He knew who all of us were, but he um, he didn't relate to new people well at all. He he often thought people were looking at him, and he would look down or, or try to look out of the corner of his eye to look at them because. He thought if he if they locked gazes, they could steal his thoughts, or they could possibly even steal his soul. Uh, you know, uh, one sister found him. He was home visiting, and he was up in one of the bathrooms upstairs, and he was shaving off the hair above his ear. And what are you doing, Paul? And he said, Well, he was shaving it. He was trying to get the radio out of his head. There was a radio in his head, and. Um, I, I don't know. It just went on and on. There, were, it was always something, just very strange. It wasn't necessarily threatening. Sometimes it was, um, but oftentimes at least bizarre. Like one time, he told uh, his twin sister Eileen that um, it was an Easter dinner, and he was behaving himself and eating dinner and talking with everyone and or listening to conversations. And he turned to her at some point and said. By the way, do you have any pine cones? I think you could get me some pine cones. And she said, well, I, I guess I could try to find some pine cones. And what do you want with the pine cones? And he said, well, if you throw them to the ground, they will pop up uh, from, from where they landed on the ground. They would pop up a Mohegan Indian, and the Indian then could be his friend or something. I, it was very unclear to me what it was he was saying about this Indian. But... Uh, you know, he just didn't seem to be in touch with reality at all. Right. Now, I'm just following up with a, a little bit more detail in the question. Let's talk about the past realities. For example, the Indian, the episode with the Mohican Indian that you just described. Mm-hmm. Um, what was his, would, would have been his recollection of that, if he had one at all, say a couple of years later. I mean, I'm just adding yeah, the years. Yeah. Uh, uh, he might or might not uh, relate to a question. I don't recall ever asking him. But the uh, the Indian uh, theme, the Native American theme, was a recurring one with him. And he often said that he himself was an Indian, and he uh, he would start a conversation with. Uh, Remember back when I had black hair? Now, he was blonde hair and blue-eyed. And uh, he said, remember back when I had black hair and I was an Indian? I'd say, no, actually, you never were an Indian. And he'd say, oh, yes, I was. (laughs) So, uh, very very strange. That, you you would agree that that was, in fact, a false memory. You know, this, this sort of technical terminology that psychologists and doctors use, um, that he remembered being an Indian um, was, in fact, a false memory. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he had others that would sort of mix themselves into the conversation a little less oddly. For example, um, one very stressful incident for him, uh, he, he was living in a garden apartment complex where he'd been put. It was supposedly a 
supervised apartment, but it wasn't really. And uh, he liked to go out and wander around outside in the middle of the night. I guess after years of being locked into his room at, at mental hospitals, he really enjoyed the freedom. And so he was walking around outside one night. It was uh, this time of year, it was in the fall, and he smelled smoke. And he realized that there was a fire in one of the other apartments in the complex. It was like 2 or 3 in the morning. And, and he, he went around and he heard a baby crying. And he was convinced there was a baby in this apartment and it was going to be killed. And he pounded on doors and woke a whole, a whole bunch of people. And they called the fire department. And they came and put out a fire. And they did save a little girl. So that was just wonderful. And, and, and when I was complimenting him on it, and he was given a little award by the social services agency that worked with him. Um, he said he got real angry and made this very cruel face. And he said, he said, yeah, well, that was Julie's baby, you know. Now, our younger sister, Julie, had just had a baby a few months before. But that was Julie's baby. She left it there. She just left it there. And I came with Homer and Dickie. We were old friends of his from high school from 30 years before, you know. Um, Homer and Dickie. And we ran in and we saved that baby and we got burned in the fire. And, you know, and then he started coughing and saying he'd swallow smoke. Now, so he went from a story that was true into all sorts of embellishments that had nothing to do with what had actually happened. Right. Now, let's ask the question about how Paul's problems with, I'm still going to use the term, interactions with realities and, you know, false memories. Mm. How these problems actually affected your family as a whole? Catherine, how did they? Well, you know, his problems made it very hard to relate to him. You know, I I have two other brothers, and they have their own personalities. We, We... get along in certain ways. You know how you sort of get along a little differently with everyone you know. You have your own relationship. You have a past that you've shared together and a future that you intend to share together. And and um, with Paul, it, it was very hard. Uh, our stories that we tell each other is, is how we relate to each other. And he just told very bizarre stories. <laughs> I mean, that's what my book is. I'm sharing my story with you. Uh, um, I make a commitment to the reader that the story I'm telling is true, and and in in daily life, that's how we get along with everyone. So uh, on one level, there's that. They just couldn't relate to him at all. On another level, his his presence actually upset the family dynamic. Uh, one of my daughters is still harboring resentment and and some anger about an incident with Paul. Um, he 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 came up to her one Christmas gathering. And uh, he threatened to rape her. I mean, it was really awful. She was a very young teenager. And she was upset about it, and we were all upset about it. And we didn't have him come around for a couple of years. We, we went to visit him a couple of days after Christmas rather than having him with the family on the day. But that, you know, every time he was in the group, someone was always sort of waiting for what's going to happen next. One time he, he took my husband, he came and my husband was in the kitchen on some Thanksgiving or Christmas, and and he slammed him up against the wall and tried to, and he caught him by his collar, you know, sort of choking him, and said, I ought to kill you right now. I don't know why he did that, but that's what he did. And 
my husband had the presence of mind to to just sort of go, <laughs> come on, Paul, you don't want to do that. I'm your brother. You don't want to hurt your brother. And he said, yeah, I guess not. Hmm. But, but when you have someone like that around, how, how often do you want him around? Right, right. And then if, when you don't have him around, when you don't bring him home for, for Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving or whatever, then you feel like you're guilty because, gee, yeah. poor guy, you know, can't we put up with him one day? You know? <laughs> yes. it, it, it's, it's a feeling like um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, and very stressful. Yes, yes. Now, at this point, we're going to take the break once more. This is okay. Dr. Gordon Averley. My guest is Catherine Deering. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. For 27 years, KidStar has empowered thousands of kids across the country. And now we have the opportunity to empower children around the world. KidStar is announcing a new radio show called Voyage Earth. Voyage Earth will empower kids from across the world. KidStar has created a Kickstarter campaign just for this new undertaking. By pledging to Kickstarter, you pledge for a future of empowered people to come. My name is Rinsley from Indy on Voice America Kids. I want to thank you for being a backer of our Kickstarter, Voyager. Kickstar, we empower kids. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Catherine Deering. Our topic is schizophrenia, false memories, family memoirs, and family caregiving. Now, Catherine, I want you to talk about your own and your own family's memoirs in the sense of what you remember, what you write down, 
what you don't write down and how these influence the ways in which you would like to improve support for family caregivers with family members living with schizophrenia. So, Catherine, first question to you. What, please talk about your family, family's memoirs as these relate to your brother Paul's life with schizophrenia. And just let me clarify one thing. Um, did, Paul died from the uh, lung cancer, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. That's okay. correct, yeah. So yeah. these are memories of the past. Talk about although, although some of them were written almost concurrent with what was going on. Yeah. Okay, tell us about the family as a whole, the memories and memoirs, um, and how they relate to their life with him and his life with them. Um, well, you know, you know, I often wish I had had a written or oral memoir of my, my parents and grandparents. You know, we've got some old pictures around of, of um, there's one of my grandmother's brother, Gene, so it would have been my great-uncle Gene. And he apparently had left home and joined the circus. She said he was a wonderful singer. That's all I know about him. And I look at that picture, and I think, I wish, I wish somebody had written down a little bit more of this. But anyway, um, uh, as far as my book, Shot in the Head, and, what, and writing it down, uh, I feel like it, it gives Paul's life some meaning. You know, well... Um, while he was going through chemo, we went for a ride one afternoon, and we were standing on a bluff looking out over the Hudson River, which is very beautiful in that part of the world. I don't, most of you probably don't know where that is. But anyway, um, there was a protected eagle sanctuary nearby, and we were watching for the sight of one of the big birds flying around. And, uh, and suddenly he wanted to talk about reincarnation with me. Now, this man who, you know, he spoke gibberish half the time, tried to choke the oncologist when he told him he had cancer. He tried to choke my husband that time. But now he wanted to talk about reincarnation. And uh, I asked him if he'd like to come back as an eagle or something, and he said no. He'd just like to come back as one of the sane ones. Wow. I, I, I thought, well, I hope that, you know, with this book, people who read this book can see that my brother and people like him, you know, he was a person. You know, um, you can see, you can see the family interacting with him and him with us. And he wasn't always that toothless, horrible looking guy that he became later on. You can see how devastating mental illness can be on a whole family. Uh, I will also, on a lighter note, say it's not easy to get eight siblings to agree, agree on what really happened. <laughs> when, <laughs> yes. when I when I uh, when I sent um, some of them little sections of the book where they were mentioned uh, prominently uh, to review uh, several times, I said that's not what really happened. No, it was more this way or that way, and we had to come to a compromise on what we agreed had actually happened. There were always pretty minor points anyway. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, altogether the package with the emails that we sent to each other while we were caring for him and some of the um, revelatory scenes that uh, we had with him uh, while he was being cared for for lung cancer, 
really, really show the person behind the illness. Yeah. Now, let's go back to you and the book. You wrote the book. You also had spoken um, in a couple of ways about the sense that good should come of something to do with this experience, this history, and in particular, Paul's life, because he was a human being. He was a person. Right. Would you go so far as to say that your book, Shot in the Head, is in fact that, the story of a life that when other people read it, particularly if they're involved in the kind of things you've been talking about, they will get some comfort, some knowledge, and something useful out of it. And therefore, there is this legacy that's useful to people. What do you think? Um. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I guess it does become a kind of legacy. Um I think it I think it um it it gives it it gives other people an insight into uh what happens in, in a family situation like this. And even if you have dealt with uh a, a severe illness, if you're a caretaker of someone with a severe illness, uh, maybe they're dying of pancreatic cancer or something like that. You know, it's, it, my, uh, one of my aunts uh, died of that illness. Um, it is really tough on the whole family to go through it. But with schizophrenia, with people with uh, treatment-resistant schizophrenia, there, there was over 30 years of that. And uh, the the buildup over the years of of problems related to it is tough. But what I what I hope I also did in the book is help people see that um, there's something that the caretaker gets out of it too. And and anyone who has been in a caretaker situation, I'm sure. <coughs> excuse me. I'm sure will agree with me that. At the end of the day, they're, they're, they're glad that they did it. Would you go so far as to say that that balances out the sense of guilt or the sense of I, maybe I didn't do enough? That sense that, yes, I did do my duty. I did what I could. I did what I consider to be the right thing. And therefore, I feel some comfort and satisfaction from that sentiment. Catherine? Yeah, I, I would I would say that's definitely true, and and um, I know that my eight siblings have all said that they're very glad I wrote the book, and that um, they have you know all of them have dear friends that were, would see how upset they'd get from time to time about uh, about Paul's plight, and they're able to tell their friends, just read this, then you can understand what I've been through. So I'm glad I was able to do that for them. I'm just kind of making a comment back to you in relation to the next question I'm going to put to you. In other words, writing these memoirs in whatever way you do it is actually valuable in a wide way to many people, family, to others who are going through this, traveling this road, and also to the knowledge that people have about what the future might be for them, for their people who suffer from this this awful illness. Now, the last question for you in this one is, 
distilled from your memoirs that, that you wrote, what more you'd like to do, you personally, to improve support for families with family members living with schizophrenia? Uh well, I, I guess what, what I'm happy to be doing and what I hope to do more of is um, having the book uh, allows, gives me kind of a, a pulpit. It, it, it allows me the opportunity to go on speaking engagements, and I speak about the role of the family in, um, and the community in the care of someone with serious mental illness. And, I, and it's given me... Uh, a means to do that, to be able to reach more people, and and uh, it just it makes me uh, feel good to be able to do that, and and uh, to connect with people who are perhaps in the initial stages of dealing with with uh, someone in their family who's just developed a, a bad illness like schizophrenia. Do you ever get a reaction from your readers that amounts to this, that I, the reader, have read your book? And I know what you're talking about because that the things you describe are in my life too. Do you get that kind of reaction, Catherine? I get it so often; it's almost eerie. Uh, the first um, the first month my book was available, it um, I got an email. A Facebook no, it was a Facebook message from someone who was a good friend of my sister Eileen, and Eileen was Paul's twin sister. And and this uh, this woman said that she had ordered the book and she got it on Kindle and she'd stayed up almost all night reading it, and she kept reading it and crying it, and she'd take a little break and have a cup of coffee or eat something and then keep reading it, <laughs> and it was an amazing feeling to to feel that um, she had related. To something I wrote in that way, and and she said, "Oh, you know, all these years that Eileen's been telling me about what what Paul was going through, you captured it, and you 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 know you got the you got the experience down for us." So there's that, and then there's also um, people who say, "Oh, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, my brother." Uh, I was interviewed yesterday by a woman um, who's a director of a library in Massachusetts, and and she said uh, I asked her, you know, you know, why are you interested in interviewing me in particular? And and she it turns out her father had schizophrenia, and uh, she had been recommended the book by a friend of hers who has a son who has schizophrenia. Oh, schizophrenia! One percent of the population has schizophrenia, so. In any group of of a hundred people, someone is ill. Uh, you know, on 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 average, statistically speaking, and um, and all the people who've been impacted by that illness, when they read this book, they say, "Yeah, that's what I went through." Yes, it was a little different with us. You know, my loved one didn't think he or she was a movie star the way Paul did. He thought he was Clint Eastwood and had made a lot of money. Uh, making Clint Eastwood movies, but um, he, they, uh, but they did some other bizarre thing, and maybe they ruined some other family gathering of theirs, so they could all relate to it. And that, I hear you saying this in effect, and I'm just summarizing back to you very quickly. Um, 
that makes people who read your book feel that they're not alone. That is, this isn't them, just them. This is a more general thing that does affect 1% of the population in differing ways. But at the same time, it means that they are not unique. and They're not alone and that they get help and encouragement from reading the stories, the memoirs of the people who live through what they're living through, um, perhaps uh, are living through for quite a while longer. So that's my quick summary back to you. Yeah, now, yeah. and, and if, if I could, I'd just like to add, what, one thing that many people have told me is that they keep reading about all the people who recover, who, you know, recovery, yeah. recovery, recovery. And they say, my son or daughter or my brother or sister has not recovered. Right. And, and I was beginning to feel like, why are we the only ones, you know? Why, why is everyone else getting better but not my someone? And, Very good and, question. Yeah. And then they read my book and they say, oh, we're not the only ones. Exactly right. Now, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Catherine Deering. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Catherine Deering. Our topic is schizophrenia, false memories, family memoirs, and family caregiving. Catherine, now let's talk about what more you would like to see done to improve support for families with a family member living with schizophrenia. So what more would you like to see done and who would you like to see do it? Catherine? Well, I'd like to see uh, our legislators um, take action to try to uh, cure this disease. Uh, And... I'd like voters to let the legislators know that we want them to do that. Uh, back in the back in the early '60s, um, when I was in high school, I lost two friends or two two schoolmates to childhood leukemia. And back then, when people developed leukemia, ninety uh, percent of them died. They uh, it was just an abysmal uh, cure rate. But at this point, ninety-five uh, percent of them. Uh, five years later, are are well. They've truly recovered. And the difference is that people poured money into research and said, we are going to do this. Or, or, or think of the polio, development of the polio vaccine. The country got together, put, put a lot of support behind looking for some way to, to stop polio, and they de- developed the SOC vaccine. So I'd like to see that happen. And in the meantime, since since once someone uh, develops schizophrenia, uh, there is a pretty poor recovery rate. Um, uh, I'd like I'd like more work done on that early intervention that I've read about. Um, we, you know, we see PSA. Uh, public service announcements on on TV all the time and in various um, uh, consumer magazines uh, about early intervention to stop heart attacks and strokes and that sort of thing. So a lot of us know the warning signs that someone's having a stroke now and know that we've got to get them to the hospital fast. Well, I'd like I'd like uh, school administrators and and parents of teenagers uh, to to have the information to know what the early warning signs are uh, of schizophrenia so that they can, they can do something. They can take the child to the appropriate people for some testing to see if they would be a good candidate for early intervention. Right. Now, my next question flows from just what, what you've just said. What's your message for family caregivers who've recently learned that an adolescent family member will have to live with schizophrenia? What's your message? Uh, my message is to become an activist. Uh, let your legislators know you want them to do something to do to uh, support research and to um, to be an activist uh, to get some of the laws changed so that more hospital beds are available for people with serious mental illness so that it, when your loved one needs care, they don't have to wait for two days in an emergency room for, for admission to some sort of a, a, a care facility. 
and then um, to to do everything they can to care. I call it the cure for schizophrenia. Uh, and when I give a talk, a C U R E meaning care until recovery, uh, and to just care for your loved one because uh, keeping them safe so that maybe five years from now or ten years from now when they come out with uh, some new breakthrough medication so that your loved one is in shape to be able to um, to take advantage of that discovery. Uh, and if you're connected to the care community, maybe through NAMI or one of the other organizations uh, that support families, uh, you're going to be aware of clinical trials. You're going to be aware of... Um, of what the possibilities are, and then just do what you can to help your loved one um, uh, survive. But care, you've just described, isn't it? That is that sense of looking after people. Um, It involves giving them whatever treatment has been prescribed, the medications or whatever it is, but it also involves that sense of um, when they're living at home, living with them, supporting them, so that or whatever progress is possible for them down the pathway of recovery, they follow. And also so that when things are starting to go wrong or not go right, then the family can recognize that something needs to be done and uh, there is a kind of early intervention in the sense of, it's not just for the diagnosis, but for example, you mentioned psychotic episodes, recognizing that one is developing, and taking action to, to get protect. to get them into a treatment facility quickly if you if yeah. you can you know yes. if you can but you are not going to be able to do that if you don't keep maintain contact so you maintain right. contact and do your best to try to make sure they're in a safe and supportive environment to the best of your ability and um and just be there for them uh as much as you can you know as we were waiting for a cure for Paul. We were hoping that one of these days the next medication that came out would would be the one that would make the difference for him. But in the meantime, his life happened. Yes, that's right. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this wonderful, insightful episode, Catherine. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And thanks very much for... That basic message to people, you're not alone. The path you're traveling, difficult though it may be, others have traveled. And you, Catherine, with the help of your family, have described it for the benefit of others. So all success to you with what you Thank call you. Your, your pulpit. I think it's a wonderful word. And I yeah. hope in a, li- a small way this episode, which you'll get a copy of, um, will help speak from the radio pulpit. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners, and I would also like to say that with Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Qualitative Research to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as the one we've just been listening to. Um, And if you're interested, please email me to hear more or perhaps to get involved. Now, our next episode will be Treatment for Crohn's Disease, Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.